Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Jane. She has been dealing with some really annoying eye symptoms for the last two years with no answers. Her eyes are feeling dry, irritated, and even blurry at times. Everyone's first thought is that she simply has dry eye and just doesn't produce enough tears. But what's interesting is that when it's windy outside, her eyes tear a lot. So that theory breaks down right there. She tried all sorts of drops from over-the-counter to prescription steroid eye drops, but nothing helped. She saw a few eye doctors, but all they did was offer more drops. They tested her vision, which was completely normal, so she didn't need glasses. But yet, for some reason, she was not able to figure out why her eyes were just so sensitive to the environment. She saw an allergist, thinking maybe that was an issue, and did antihistamines, but that didn't really help. The dryness and the redness was still there and kept getting worse. When I met Jane and talked to her in depth, I saw that it's been a long while since her last blood work with her regular doctor. And based on her symptoms, my sense was that it was another organ driving her eye issue and giving her these symptoms. And it actually wasn't an eye issue specifically. So to solve this health mystery, we had to look outside the box. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me, before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Jane and her nagging and frustrating eye symptoms. Joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is Dr. Radrani Bonick. I actually had Dr. Rani on the show earlier this year in episode 50. She is a board-certified and fellowship-trained neuro-ophthalmologist who has over 20 years of medical experience as a clinician, educator, and researcher. She's the founder of Envision Health NYC, a private practice based on the Upper East Side in New York City. Now, when it comes to eyes and connecting eye issues to the rest of the body, she is the best and the one that I turn to. So Dr. Rani, it's so great to have you back. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Ina. It's really a pleasure to be back here. Thank you. So Dr. Rani, oftentimes when we think about our eyes, we think about being able to see clearly and easily and that problems with the eyes will create issues with how well we see both maybe far and near. But that's really only the beginning. Our eyes are connected to so many different organs. And one of those connections 
is the thyroid. Can you tell us a little bit more about this connection? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, many people don't quite understand when I say, you know, the thyroid is related to your the health of your eyes. So um, it's a really interesting relationship because the receptors on the thyroid look very similar to the receptors that are found in the eye socket. So for example, in the eye socket, we have muscles there, we have fat in the eye socket, and we have connective tissue. And all of these tissues have receptors that look very similar to the thyroid. So whenever the thyroid, whenever there there are issues with the thyroid, specifically autoimmune issues, um, then, you know, whatever uh, immune response is mounted against the thyroid also similarly can be mounted against the eye socket as well and cause a lot of different eye issues. Mm, That is so interesting. And, you know, we hear a lot about this concept of molecular mimicry where sometimes, you know, certain foods, you know, there's a big connection with, say, gluten and thyroid autoimmune issues where people eat gluten and the body will attack that and then accidentally attack the organ. So it's so interesting because this is almost, it sounds like the same kind of thing. It's just organ to organ because of that cross reactivity. Yes, exactly. It is, it is molecular mimicry. So, you know, the receptors look similar, they get activated in similar ways. And so um, that causes certain issues. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting and really good to know because I just don't think it's talked about enough. And a lot of people don't realize this connection. What about symptoms? You know, if someone is having eye symptoms and they're associated with an underlying thyroid problem, what are some examples of those symptoms? So initially, it may seem like the eyes are just irritated, like they're dry, or you may be having eye allergies or just, you know, perhaps just some puffiness of the lids from something in the environment. So there is an overlap, first of all, between the initial thyroid eye symptoms and other eye issues. Uh, But then when other things begin to happen, for example, you know, if you think you have dry eye, if you think you have allergies and you're being treated for it and it's not getting better, that's, that's a red flag that perhaps there's something else underlying the eye issue. And as the disease progresses, especially in the eye socket, there are certain changes that happen on the surface of the eye as well as the eyelids. Those are typically the first to get involved. So I had mentioned before swelling of the eyelids. That's one of the the you know, first uh, characteristics of thyroid eye disease. Uh, Oftentimes the upper lids get very, very puffy, more so on the outer edges, uh, especially in the morning. And then as the day goes on, that may slowly go away um, as some of the fluid gets absorbed by the body. Other things that can happen uh, are that the eyes may look wide open. So almost like a stare, like a wide-eyed kind of a stare appearance. And um, often people comment, you know, my eyes just look so wide open and, and they get dry and I don't know why. Um, and, uh, and the other thing that can happen is redness. So chronic redness, um, and more so on the bottom part of the eye that just, again, does not respond to anything that we typically use. For example, eye drops like lubricating drops or allergy drops. Um, then as the disease progresses, it can actually cause a lot of other more serious issues, uh, really related to that inflammation in the eye socket that I was talking about triggered by the autoimmune process. So, What can begin to happen is that the eyes can actually start to look bigger. They can actually start to protrude or bulge. And uh, in medical terms, we call that proptosis, where the eyes look really big and they're bulging forward. Um, So that can happen. And then, uh, you know, kind of going along the spectrum of how thyroid can affect the eyes, um, that, you know, because the muscles behind the eye sockets can get involved, people can eventually develop double vision, which can be very, very debilitating and scary. 
Um, they can even develop um, uh, loss of vision. So, for example, if the optic nerve in the eye socket gets affected by all this inflammation and congestion that's going on, uh, some people even lose vision. So that's more of a very severe, advanced form of it. And again, just keep in mind that this is a whole spectrum, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's not that you know one day you start off with a few you know dry eye symptoms and redness, and then a week later you're having vision loss. It's a very slow process, usually over the course of weeks to months, and sometimes even years. And hopefully, not everyone progresses to that you know the more advanced stage of the disease. Now, I know before we hit record, we were talking about it's not so much the thyroid issue itself that can create this, but it's the autoimmunity. So if someone has hypothyroid or hyperthyroid, meaning slow or fast thyroid, if it's not autoimmune driven, then there may not be a connection. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, correct. So if it's just simple hypothyroidism uh, and there's no autoimmune antibodies floating around, then no, the eyes should not get involved in this way. And the same with hyperthyroidism. Uh, but the autoimmune process, so it's very interesting, you know, a lot of people think that in terms of autoimmunity, you know, between the thyroid and the eyes, a connection that graves, which is hyperthyroidism due to um, an autoimmune condition is the only condition that affects the eyes, but that's actually not true. So uh, both graves and Hashimoto's, which is the autoimmune form of hypothyroidism can cause eye symptoms. And again, it's through the same mechanism of, you know, the antibodies looking very similar, molecular mimicry. And the interesting thing is also there are some people who have the antibodies in their blood and clinically they don't seem to have hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. You know, they seem to be doing fine, but they can get eye involvement. So it can actually happen in isolation. And it's, it's kind of tricky to diagnose because, you know, if you don't have any thyroid issues, you know, why would you think that your eye issues are, are coming from your thyroid? But I've seen many cases where the eye issues begin first. And again, it's autoimmune in nature. And if we do the blood work, we'll find some of these, those autoimmune antibodies, but they have a delayed onset of their thyroid issues. So I have some patients patients who don't have thyroid issues initially, but five, 10, or even 20 years later, they develop thyroid issues. So it's a really, it's almost like a disconnect between the timing of the eye onset and the thyroid onset. And the opposite can happen also. I've had some patients who've had thyroid issues and perhaps, you know, they've been treated 20 years ago and then, you know, just kind of all of a sudden out of the blue, their eyes begin to act up and it's all related to the autoimmune process. Yeah. And in Jane's case, it was the first thing that happened. Her thyroid was actually okay, which is why no one really looked at it, but that's really the issue, a lot of doctors don't test for all of the markers and the autoimmune antibodies. And, you know, I see that a lot in my practice as well. I mean, I don't look at the eyes specifically like you do, but when I test all of the thyroid markers, oftentimes I'll see antibodies for Hashimoto's that are positive, the antithyroglobulin and TPO, but the TSH, T4, T3, all of those are okay. And, you know, some people do have eye issues, some people don't, but it's to your point that it can take a while for the organs to get destroyed. And I think it's interesting, and I don't know if there's any connection as to, you know, what comes first, but why the body may destroy the eye first before the thyroid, or maybe even another organ if there's any other connections. Yeah, I mean I it's it's a great question and I don't know why, you know, you know when this autoimmune process gets triggered why one organ would be affected first. 
um, and not you know simultaneously. So just to just to talk a little bit more about your point, the testing is just so important. And you know I've had so many patients where I ask them, you know, have you had your thyroid check and checked? And they say yes. And then when I review the labs, all they have had is TSH and free T4, and that's it. And that's just not sufficient to be able to make the proper diagnosis. And even many endocrinologists, you know, this is kind of shocking to me because I do work very closely with my colleagues in endocrinology. Many of them even don't order the autoimmune panel. And it's really important to get the full panel. What you had mentioned before, I love getting the TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies. I also add another one, which is the TSH receptor antibody. Um, That's also... um, another uh, autoimmune test that you can get. And I've found that that in particular tends to be elevated in in some of my thyroid eye disease patients. Mm, Okay. That's really good to know. And then for the actual thyroid markers, are you looking at both total and free T4 and T3? Yes, I do. Yeah. And how about reverse? Is that something that you find helpful? I have, yes, I do check that as well because that, you know, that's an indication that perhaps your total thyroid hormone is okay, but it's not being, the um, pathways are not working properly. And reverse T3 is not uh, an active form of T3. So, um, you know, there, there's some dysfunction going on there if your reverse T3 is high. So I do get the full panel. I know that, again, some of my other colleagues are very kind of hesitant to get the full panel, but as an integrative and functional uh, ophthalmologist, I prefer to get that. Yeah, for sure. Me too. And, and, you know, you were saying that you ask people if they've had their thyroid test that I used to ask that all the time, but I've actually stopped asking because every time I ask, people would say yes. And then all they would have is TSH. So mm-hmm. now yeah. I just say, you know, let's, let's test it again. <laughs> let's just look at everything. And it's also very important for patients to advocate on their own behalf, because again, I've had some patients who request getting these labs and then they're turned down. Then they come to me and they'll ask me, oh, can you please order them for me? Because my regular doctor says it's not necessary. So um, again, if you really want to get to the root cause of the problem, it's best to get the full panel. Yeah, for sure. And it is helpful if your doctor is not open to have someone that's more integrative, an integrative doctor or nutritionist. Sometimes chiropractors can run blood work. A lot of times OBGYNs can be a little bit more open, even if you're not pregnant, but just going in for a regular yearly checkup, you know, they might be more open to that too. Midwives are really good with that. Yeah. And depending on the state, I know where you're in New York and I'm in New Jersey, so it's a little bit hard for certain people to order unless they're an MD. But in other states, people can order their own blood work through different labs. I think pretty much any state except for New York, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, our hands are tied in certain situations. But. but I think the point here for everyone listening is that if your doctor isn't open, that doesn't mean that that's the end of the road for you and it is what it is. I think advocating for yourself, like Dr. Ani saying, is so important and there's going to be someone, you know, so you just want to keep looking and there's going to be someone that can order it for you, a doctor or ways that you could do it on your own. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Ani, what about specific eye tests? I know we talked about the different thyroid tests, but there are there any tests that people can do through their eye doctor that can show them that maybe it's not specifically an eye issue and it could be something else? 
Yeah. So the exam is very important. And so, you know, when you go to see the eye doctor, depending on who you're seeing, either it's an optometrist or ophthalmologist, they may do, you know, they may check your vision, check your glasses prescription, but I would specifically ask them to do some lid tests. So um, for example, I do measurements of the lids, very careful measurements to see if they're more open than they should be. So there are standard ranges of how open your eyelids should be. And if they're more open than normal, then that may suggest a thyroid issue or perhaps something else. And then there are motility measurements that I do. So again, if someone has uh, congestion in the eye socket and they may have a risk for double vision, I check their motility very well. I do specific measurements called prism measurements to make sure that the eyes are aligned properly, that there's no misalignment of the eyes. And the other really important test to do in the office for your eye doctor is something called an exophthalmometer. And it's a mouthful to say also, but basically it's a little device and it measures how your eyes rest within the eye socket. So if you feel like your eyes look bigger than normal, if you feel like they're bulging, ask to get that test done. Uh, and it will give your doctor specific measurements, so objective measurements, not just subjective, but objective measurements to go by. And that's something that can be tracked over time. So for example, if it's changing, you know, if, if things are getting worse and your eyes look like they're bulging more, then it can be monitored properly. And then, um, you know, in some cases, if it's not a clear-cut case of thyroid eye disease and your, your doctor's not sure really what's going on, the best next step is to get um, an actual imaging test. And, you know, that would be something that your doctor would have to order. And that could be either a CAT scan or an MRI of the eye socket. And when, um, you know, I typically, I don't actually go down that route because I base the diagnosis off of my clinical exam. But again, if there's any uncertainty, a CAT scan or MRI will actually show us what's going on in the eye socket. It will show us if there's congestion in the eye muscles, if they're enlarged, if they're swollen, if the eyes are protruding. So it can give a lot more anatomic information than your uh, than a regular eye exam would give. But again, not everyone needs that because it really should be a clinical diagnosis that can be done just in the office without any really additional, you know, ancillary testing. That makes sense. Now, Dr. Rani, for those that may not be familiar, can you tell us what is the difference between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist? Great questions. I get this all the time. So both are eye care providers and both are doctors, but different types of doctors. So an optometrist is a doctor of optometry or a, an OD. And an optometrist has gone to college for four years and then optometry school for four years. So it's eight years of training. And optometrists um, are able to prescribe glasses. They're able to diagnose basic eye conditions. And depending on what state you're in, they can also prescribe certain medications, for example, eye drops. Um, now, ophthalmologists are MDs or medical doctors. And ophthalmologists have gone to uh, school for, so undergrad for four years, medical school for four years. Um, and then uh, what's required is an additional internship and residency. So that is typically another four years. So it's 12 years of training and uh, it's training in both the medical and surgical um, aspects of eye disease. So uh, we are, I'm an ophthalmologist and we're surgeons as well. So we take care of the full spectrum and we also prescribe glasses. So again, both are doctors, you know, both do, there's definitely overlap in what we do, but um, you know, if it is something like thyroid eye disease, you really should see an ophthalmologist because in this, you know, situation, you may need to get specific treatments that are medical and 
hopefully not, but some patients do end up needing surgery for their thyroid eye issues. So it's really best to be seen by an ophthalmologist. And even it's, it's it goes a little bit further, even within the field of ophthalmology, there are subspecialists. So for example, I'm a neuro-ophthalmologist, so I take care of a lot of the diseases that affect the nervous system as well as the eyes. And I also take care of thyroid eye disease. The other type of specialty that deals with thyroid eye disease is an orbital doctor or oculoplastics doctor. They would basically manage the lid issues. You know, if your lids are wide open and you need to get that treated or fixed, or if the eye is bulging and some patients, if the eye is bulging and it's causing vision loss, they may end up needing surgery to decompress the eye socket. And that would be be done by an orbital surgeon or oculoplastic surgeon. Ah, okay. That's great information to know. Thank you for that. So when you see a patient and they come in with certain eye issues and once you do your full exam and look at everything, you see that there is a thyroid eye disease situation happening, what would be the first thing that you do? Where do you start and then how do you progress from there? Well, first I would start with the blood work. I send patients myself for their blood work. And then I also ask them, you know, are you followed by an endocrinologist? Because this is something that we co-manage. You know, I don't take care of this as their primary um, doctor taking care of their thyroid, but I co-manage it with their endocrinologist. And if not, then I get them hooked up with an endocrinologist. And uh, based on what their eye symptoms are, I begin the treatment. So if it's, you know, if it's in the early stage of disease, if it's um, dry eyes, surface issues, um, you know, redness, irritation, I go ahead and I treat that. And typically that's treated with um, topical medications, typically lubricants, uh, both drops and ointments. Sometimes patients do require prescription medications, either uh, an antihistamine drop or an oral antihistamine, sometimes even uh, topical steroids. So these would be the, the initial kind of prescription um, treatments that I use. I do reserve steroids for only people who are really at risk for vision loss because steroids are not without side effects. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's given kind of very carefully um, and it really needs to be monitored very closely because especially for something like a steroid drops, you don't want to take steroid drops for too long because it can lead to glaucoma and herpetic infections and all kinds of other you know horrible things. So we don't want to keep our patients on steroid medications. But my approach also is to really focus on, and again, this kind of brings back the integrative and functional approach, to focus on the diet and lifestyle factors that may be potentially aggravating their thyroid problem. And so, um, so I really go into a very thorough diet history. Uh, I see, you know, what types of foods are they eating? Are they on a specific type of diet? If they're on certain foods that potentially may be uh, triggering some of their thyroid issues, for example, there are certain uh, goitrogens, many of which are cruciferous vegetables. I would perhaps ask them to stop. Or if they're on nightshades, um, I typically ask my thyroid patients to perhaps cut that out as well, as well as gluten, uh, which you had mentioned before because of that connection and sometimes dairy as well. So I ask them to at least temporarily try to eliminate some of those food groups. And then, you know, once things are hopefully better, then we can slowly start to reintroduce them and see if they have any reactions or any flare-ups. 
In terms of lifestyle, it's really, really important to avoid any kind of smoke or fumes. And, you know, the first thing we always ask our, our patients is, um, do you smoke or not? Because there are many studies that show that people who smoke have a much worse prognosis when it comes to thyroid eye disease. They actually have a lot worse complications from thyroid eye disease. So we ask them to stop smoking or even stay away from secondhand smoke. And I even go an extra mile and I ask them to stay away from cooking fumes. So if they do cook frequently or if they're barbecuing, they definitely need to wear some kind of eye protection like goggles um, and, and have good ventilation. So that's really important as well. And then of course, the other lifestyle factors, stress is so important when it comes to managing the thyroid. I can't tell you how many of my patients uh, have told me that they have the onset of their symptoms when they're in very stressful periods in their lives. So that definitely is a huge trigger and it can fluctuate. You know, you can get things under control during periods of low stress, but as soon as stress picks up, it can flare up again. So, you know, it's kind of an ongoing uh, management that's really important, you know, just trying to modulate. We all have stress, but it's a matter of modulating our stress. And then sometimes I use uh, botanicals and supplements as well for um, their thyroid eye disease. So there's actually been a study done in Europe um, using selenium. And we know that selenium, uh, which is a mineral, can decrease um, some of the symptoms and findings of thyroid eye disease. So in that study, they actually used a supplement, so 100 micrograms twice a day. And that's, you know, that's something that people can consider. Or, you know, if they don't want to do a supplement, then having food foods that are rich in selenium. I love Brazil nuts, uh, but eggs are also rich in selenium as well as beef and chicken and pork. Now, do you ever test people for their selenium levels? I typically don't. I haven't, but um, have, you, have you found that helpful in your practice? You know, I don't find it as helpful in blood just because I think it fluctuates so much. I use hair testing for minerals and metals, and um, I do see that that in my opinion, tends to be a little bit more accurate than just a regular serum selenium level. So I think that that could work pretty well. Um, and a lot of people are deficient in it. And I think partly also because so much, so many of us are exposed to heavy metals, mercury, mm -hmm. aluminum, even copper, which you know is a mineral, it's not a heavy metal, but when it becomes too high in the body, it acts almost as a metal. And you know, you need selenium, you need zinc to help to offset those metals and naturally chelate them. So I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people are deficient. The nice thing about selenium too is that it can be helpful for the conversion of T4 to T3, which a lot of people don't do as well because of potential liver issues or gut issues. So I think it's just such a nice mineral for so many different things related to thyroid and thyroid eye disease. Yeah. And you, and you brought up one more thing, which is zinc. Uh, zinc is also really important for healthy thyroid function and producing the hormones. So, you know, try to have foods that are rich in zinc. You can also do zinc lodgences. That's another option for people. And then in terms of the other testing that you do, so obviously you work with an endocrinologist and you do all the thyroid tests and make sure that they're properly supported. And then you talked about foods and lifestyle. Now, do you ever do food sensitivity testing or any other type of other functional testing to help you along with this? I would love to, but because I practice in New York, oh, um, right. I'm very limited in what I can do. And I've tried to get around this and there's 
there's really right now there's no other path. So, you know, if if someone really truly does need food sensitivity testing, oftentimes I will ask them to go to a state, a local state. So, you know, for example, in Connecticut, they're, you know, the, it's allowed. So, you know, I may ask them to um, to go see a provider in Connecticut simply to get that testing done. But it's very, very frustrating. It's, it's, I think it is so important to know, you know, uh, which foods one may be sensitive to and, you know, to adjust your diet based off of that. But there are limitations. Right, right. But, you know, what you mentioned, though, with gluten and nightshades, all of the things are going to be allergenic for probably a lot of people that are high in lectin. So these are things that, you know, you're going to probably hit a lot of people across the board when they eliminate that and they're going to feel a difference. So Mm -hmm. now you mentioned also that initially if people are having issues, you would sometimes use lubricating drops or other natural drops. Are those prescription or are those things that people can get over the counter? Many of them are over the counter, but there are so many brands out there. And, and um, there are some a couple of ingredients that um, I just want to mention that you should probably watch out for, meaning if you see that ingredient, you probably do not want to get it. So the ingredient that, that I'm most cautious about is something called polyvinyl alcohol. And this is a, a cheap ingredient that's in a lot of the lubricating drops out there, more often in the generic types of drops. Um, and what polyvinyl alcohol does is, you know, it is a lubricant, but it's actually, um, the pH is not balanced to the eye. So it can be very toxic to the surface of the eye and make dry eye worse. So, you know, just look for the label, look at the label. If you see anything that says alcohol in there, then don't get it. There are plenty of other drops that don't have that ingredient. So I'll just mention a couple of brands that are out there. So Refresh, Sustain, Gentile, these are all great brands and they, they don't have that ingredient. So if you're looking for a drop, you know, you can get any of any of those brands. And again, even within those brands, there are many different kind of levels of treatment. So, you know, there's kind of the, the base level, which is, you know, for example, refresh or sustain. But if you wanted to go a little bit more, there are thicker, more viscous drops that you can use. Uh, for example, refresh liquid gel still a drop, but it's thicker. So it's almost like a gel consistency, but it, you know, you can definitely put it in several times a day or sustain, uh, gel drops is also, um, another option that's more viscous and thicker. So these drops you can put in multiple times a day for some of my patients. You know, I even have some patients with severe dry eye who put them in like every two hours or maybe even every hour, uh, just as they need it. And what I, you know, it's, it's very similar to the concept of dry skin. So, um, you know, when our skin gets dry, we need to lubricate. And some seasons we may have to lubricate more than others. And the same thing holds true for dry eye. If you feel like your eyes are dry or scratchy, if they feel like they're gritty, they have sand in them, absolutely use the drops as often as you need to. And then the ointment, uh, the ointment comes uh, in a little tube. It's almost like a tiny little tube of toothpaste. And um, you just squeeze out maybe a quarter inch. And the ointment is very, very thick and it will make your vision blurry. So I typically tend to recommend not using it during the day and just reserving it for bedtime. So you just put a quarter inch just into the bottom lid. You pull down your lid and you put a little quarter inch into that pocket right there and it will melt and it will coat your eye during the course of the night. And I think especially for thyroid eye patients, some patients, because of the lid changes that happen, they're not able to close their eyes fully. And so their eyes stay open just a sliver at night, all night long. And so their eyes really dry out by the time morning comes around. So using that ointment is very, very helpful. 
Mm, that's great to know. And I think that people may think that, oh, I don't want to put stuff in my eye all the time, but that's such a good point that you make. It's the same thing as our skin, right? We put moisturizer on every time we take a shower, usually, right? And sometimes even more, especially during the winter season. So it makes sense that you want to lubricate or else it's just going to dry up more and, you know, create more problems. Mm-hmm. What about other things like, for example, styes? Is that something that you ever see connected to thyroid eye disease? Um, I mean, they can definitely happen, but they're more coincidental. It's thyroid doesn't specific uh, thyroid issues don't specifically cause styes. Uh, styes are. are because we have tiny little glands in our eyelids that secrete oils. And they, these oils are important for our tears. They help you know, coat the tears and prevent the tears from evaporating. So when these little glands in our eyelids get pl- plugged up, uh, they get clogged because of unhealthy oil production. Then they get infected on top of it. That's what a sty is. And a sty is like a little bump. Um, oftentimes it's, you know, red. It can be tender to the touch. It can grow very large sometimes even. Uh, but that is, um, you know, because the gland is getting plugged up. And uh, for that, you know, for prevention of styes, um, it's really important to have a balance of your uh, omegas. So oftentimes I see patients who have, you know, too much of a ratio of omega-6 to 3, then that uh, is kind of disturbing the balance of their oil production and it can lead to clogging and styes. So uh, a slightly different cause um, and a a different approach to treatment. Mm -hmm. That was a little more of a personal question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not alone. So hormones also play play a huge, since we're talking about styes, hormones play a huge role in styes as well. And I can tell you, I never had styes in my life until after I gave birth, when my hormones were just kind of all over the place. Um, I got seven styes in the matter of one month. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it was definitely hormonally related. So there are many different reasons why people can get styes and Yes, they're very common and very annoying. Yeah, I just recently had one. um, And what's interesting is I noticed I don't get them very often, maybe once every, I don't know, five years or something like that. But it typically happens when I change my skincare products. Oh, And I don't know if it's that the skincare products are maybe getting into my eye. I mean, I try not to put it obviously right near my eye, but sometimes it may get in and maybe there's just, you know, I do use some things that have oil in them. So I don't know if that has something to do with it. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. It's, it could be that it's clogging your glands. And, you know, the best thing for sty treatment is to use hot compresses. Mm-hmm. Um, really, you know, be very conscientious about that and then it'll drain. So. Yeah. And, you know, I just recently found out, I was always told, I think by my mother or grandmother that, you know, you want to use heat, but they used a lot of moist heat. So a big thing in like the sort of Lithuanian Russian tradition is, oh, if you have a sty, you know, take a a tea bag, Mm -hmm. you know, and dip it in warm water and use it as a compress. Um, And I guess the tea may have had some things that can help to drain. The problem is that because it's moist heat and not dry heat, it actually would puff everything up and make it worse. And so I just recently heard that, no, you want to do dry heat. And it made such a difference because every time I would use the moist heat, I feel like it would get so big and it would look so much worse for a long time. Yeah. Well, the key is it, uh, no matter what type of heat you use, whether it's moist heat or dry heat, after you do the heat, do a little massage. So you want to open up that gland and get it to drain. So just kind of gently push down on the sty and try to see if you can get anything to come out. And eventually it'll drain kind of like this yellowish green pussy material. And then you know that that gland is open and it should resolve pretty quickly. Gotcha. That's great to know. Thank you for that. 
Dr. Rani, this has been so helpful. It's been so insightful to see all of the connections between the thyroid and the eye and, you know, especially that autoimmune connection that I think a lot of people don't realize. So thank you. Thank you so much for all of this information. And for those that want to find you and connect with you, how can they reach you? Where can they find you? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I want to thank you for having me back on your show because it's always a pleasure. Um, you know, I learn from you as well as we go through this process. So, you know, it's, it's really great to kind of... Um, uh, share our thoughts and our and our experiences. Um, so, in terms of you know reaching out to me or finding me, um, my website is probably the best resource. So it's my full name, which is rudranibanikmd.com, and um, through that you can contact me. You can email me. I'm also pretty active on social media. So you can find me on Instagram at dr.ronniebannock. And I share a lot of eye health tips there as well as migraine tips. And then I'm also, I have two Facebook groups. One is called Envision Health and, um, and the other one is called Ion Migraine. So I welcome any of your listeners who are interested in eye health or brain health, migraine and so forth, autoimmune conditions, thyroid conditions to please um, follow me and join me on social media as well. Oh, that would be great. And I will post all of those links in the show notes for you guys to see. And Dr. Rani, I know that you have a book coming out in a little while. So I'm excited to have you back on the show again when that's out. So we could talk all about that. There's a lot of exciting information there. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Ina. As you just heard, there is a big connection between our thyroid and specifically the autoimmune antibodies, both for Graves and Hashimoto's and our eyes. Jane didn't specifically present with many classic thyroid symptoms, but knowing the connection, I knew I needed to evaluate this further. After running a comprehensive set of labs, we learned that her TSH, T4, and T3, both total in the free, were completely normal in the optimal range. However, her thyroid peroxidase antibodies, which are one set of antibodies for Hashimoto's, were 325. Ideally, they should be below 35. This is considered quite high and showed that she did in fact have Hashimoto's. While we don't know how long her antibodies have been elevated, the good news was that unlike many others with Hashimoto's, her actual thyroid function has not been affected, yet at least, and the eyes were really the first symptom. And knowing this, we didn't need thyroid medication or even thyroid supplements, but instead we needed to address the immune system, which is what got confused and started attacking the thyroid, and then in turn attacking the eyes, due to molecular mimicry. So our work was cut out for us. Now, if you listen to the show regularly or follow me on social, I'm at Ina Toppler on Instagram, you've probably heard me speak about the different immune triggers, which are foods, toxins, infections, and stress. And if this is new to you and you want to learn more, if you go back to episode 32, Solving the Autoimmune Mystery, I get into these triggers in depth in very easy to understand terms, so you can learn more there. Now for Jane, I needed to find the source of the immune confusion, so we started to explore which triggers were key for her. I think that in terms of stress, it's one that's a trigger for most of us. So instead of spending money on testing there, I worked with Jane on breathing, mindfulness, and different neuroassociations that she's formed over the years to help her lower her nervous system. Now, while stress is something we can't always avoid, the way we deal with it and the way we respond to it is in our control. I then ran a food sensitivity test and Jane had a reaction to both gluten and dairy, so we took that out of her diet. I also ran a stool test and found a parasite called Blastocystis hominis, or Blasto for short, 
While she was not having major digestive issues, this is a type of infection that can create an autoimmune trigger even if there's not any major IBS-type symptoms. And this parasite is not always the easiest to eradicate and typically takes about 10 weeks of support. Now, I have very good results with a product called Para-1 and Para-2 from Cellcor, which I used, followed by liposomal artemisinin from Quicksilver, and then GI microbics from Designs for Health. And I'll have all of these in the show notes if you want to reference them. And this did the trick. Her test was clear when we rechecked everything in three months. Now, just a little side note, if you're doing a digestive protocol and cleansing, you want to make sure that you retest at least two weeks or longer after you finish the protocol. If you do your stool test while you're still taking the herbs, you may get a false negative. So just wanted to mention that so that you guys know. Now, when we first started, Jane's eye issues actually seemed a bit worse in the first three weeks. And this is not uncommon when cleansing and making a lot of changes. I supported Jane through the process by lowering her nervous system, but also lowering the digestive support slightly and then ramping it up after about a week. At four weeks, she started to feel better. Eight weeks in, her eyes were about 50% better, and after 12 weeks on both the diet and the cleansing protocol, her eye issues were completely gone. She was so excited. We redid her blood work, and were thrilled to see that her thyroid peroxidase antibodies were actually down to 75. That's a huge drop from 325 where she started. And I know they're still not at zero, but it has only been three months, and she's going to continue her gluten-free and dairy-free diet while we support healing her gut with probiotics and teravite and glutamine. Through all of this, she is continuing taking time for herself, doing mindfulness, doing breathing, and will keep this up to help balance her daily stressors, which I know is going to be big in keeping her nervous system down and in turn her immune system in check. If Jane sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And for more information about Dr. Ronnie and all of the details that we discuss, you can find everything in the show notes. They're on my website, healthmysterysolved.com, and everything is under episode 80. And when it comes to your health, please remember there are answers. Sometimes it may not always be obvious, but there are so many things that you can do, and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode of Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.